Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Nathan Smith. Nathan is a graduate of Asbury Theological Seminary and an ordained minister in the Church of Christ. He serves as a minister at University Christian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, where he lives with his wife. I give you Nathan Smith. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Full disclosure, you work with Mandy Smith at the University Christian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. That is correct. I've been working there seven years now. Is there a lot of pressure if if Christian Church is in your name, like the Christian Church, like the it's definite article? I mean, do you ever think like we should know. just be a Christian Church? <laughs> As long as there's like a space between the A and the Christian, then of course. But it it kind of feels like you're undermining like the whole tradition. Like how on earth were we the first denomination to think, you know, let's just call ourselves Christians. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a brilliant rhetorical move ahead of its time. Yeah. Could be. Could be. And you guys go lectionary on and off. Right now you're going through Mark. Yeah, yeah. We so we followed the lectionary for the past three years and went through the whole cycle. And um, just to uh, stay within one book, we've decided to stick with Mark, uh, following the Christmas tide, Christmas season, and we're going to stick on that track all the way up until Easter. But we'll still celebrate, or celebrate's the wrong word. We'll observe Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and then uh, you should do Ash Wednesday with celebrate. <laughs> exactly yes that would throw people off but you're liturgically minded enough that you can throw yourself in so let's roll into these texts the first text we have is the old testament reads deuteronomy 18 15 through 20 here um moses is telling the israelites that the lord their god will raise them a prophet like him i mean which is the the egocentricity i would guess a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You're, God's going to give you a prophet like me among your own people. And you shall heed such a prophet. And there's this sort of, it's interesting because Moses is about the best prophet, you know, I mean, the paradigmatic prophet in the tradition. Absolutely. And he's saying, you know, look for someone, you know, like me. And yet this guy is going to, um, yeah, so I mean, what do, you, what do you make of this? Like, how would you preach yeah, this? Yeah, of course. So, well, f- full disclosure to your listeners. So, I've had a number of times in which I've, I've uh, preached, but sharing that pulpit with two others. So, mostly my role is uh, as a liturgist. And as a liturgist, you need to think of the narrative as a whole. So, all of these passages, where are they trying to move? What were the lectionary writers um, or compilers thinking as they put this together? And so, if I were to be including this in the trajectory of my liturgy through the sermon, I would obviously be connecting kind of exactly what you're saying on the emphasis of uh, of Moses being this um, the great prophet, but then another coming like him. 
And so this is going to be pushing us into the season of Epiphany, which we continue to, to observe um, and also might be understood as ordinary time, but it's really the revealing of, of Christ and his own authority. And so for the uh, lectionary writers, uh, their compilers to have this within their um, passage for Deuteronomy, obviously they're going to be thinking about how is this pushing us forward into the idea of, of Christ coming to all people in this new per, uh, prophet in the lineage of Moses. And so have strong Christological themes moving us in that direction. That's probably where I would start and just uh, recognizing that the hope of this is built on this, uh, this desired prophet uh, that was going to be coming in the future for uh, God's chosen people, but then being brought forward into the, as the person of Christ. It's interesting, too, because as you're preaching this in North America, it, it seems like, you know, Moses is delivering these words in a time where he's the Mac Daddy of prophecy at the time. And it's sort of like, well, better than Moses. I mean, not that he hasn't has problems with his followers, but like, but right now, I mean, in the age of Trump, like on the right, it seems like all the prophets cash in their integrity. Right? We give Donald Trump a mulligan. We get and, and on the left, I mean, you have people like Barber and other people, like, but it doesn't, I mean, I think the voices in the religious left sound more anti-Trump than prophetic very often. Mm. And so, I mean, it's interesting because this is, and even people who live post-Christus, right? Like we, we live after the coming of the one who Moses is alluding to, but like, it, it seems like it's a hard time for prophets and prophecy. Yeah, I would imagine, especially with the sense of tribalism that has developed within the past number of years here in America, how do you dissect yourself from uh, falling into those dichotomies? Um, Where do you find the middle, and uh, what does that look like? And perhaps it comes from this sense, if you're going to be preaching from Deuteronomy, it comes from the sense of recognizing uh, the prophet that is to come, Um, and also what what does Moses... uh, imply within that that God's words will be in his mouth and uh, also talks about um, the sense of other prophets perhaps coming but not living up to it uh, what uh, God's word is um, but obviously if you're having a Christological emphasis within this how is how is the word of God as uh, Bart does emphasize as well this word event hitting us in such a moment that it affects us to move deeper into uh, the heart of God as well. And so maybe we can uh, stave off our own tribalism in order to be able to see those for whom Christ died, which I believe Paul will get into as well within our uh, epistle. transition. All right. I like that. Segway. Segway. All right. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. We're, we're talking about food sacrifice to idols, right? Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, <laughs> I've got the best Corinthians. Uh, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Now, and he, he talks about 
eating, you know, meat sacrifices, which I think would, for your average listener, is completely bizarre. But if you're a Jew or somebody that has become a follower of the way in the first century in Corinth, and you're struggling to reconcile with the story of the God of Israel, which is revealed in Jesus, like every piece of meat price on the marketplace has been sacrificed at some idol, right? Because, it's, you know, it's used meat, but used quickly. I mean, they sacrifice it and then you sell it. Like there's a nice economy there. And so this is a practical question. Like when you go to buy your groceries, how much do you have to attend to the fact that this was sacrificed to effort, that this was used in a religious ritual that is utterly pagan <laughs> and not it has values that probably are different than the values of the way of Jesus. So like, this seems like so abstract, but it's kind of practical, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I kind of wonder for those who might be reading the passage, uh, one person might come at it of, you know, it, it seems, it seems probably practical on Paul's level and we have to understand that practicality. But, um, one might come at it of seeing the the weakness, and uh, I believe Paul even refers to them as being weak, of those who are struggling with this idea of food sacrifice to idols. But then another person might read the same passage and feel that the pretension of those who don't care about the, the weaker um, brother or sister in the faith is the issue. And as Paul is addressing this, it's also really interesting that he states that we all have knowledge. And then he does go into this area of saying that knowledge will puff up. But I feel like it'd also be really easy to uh, discredit uh, knowledge um, in, in our own context and uh, discredit a sense of theology within this in order to say, well, we all need to simply have this unity by... Um, what is the, the least common denominator? And that's where we're going to find our unity. But it's interesting to see what uh, Paul does here is he does state for those who maybe don't have an issue with eating meat sacrificed to idols that, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, there's nothing to that. We don't necessarily need to worry about it on a, on a knowledge level, on a theological level, perhaps. Um, and in those early moments of the passage, it's really interesting because he refers to um, those who do have struggles as the weak, but then he moves on to his language to describe those not simply as the weak, but those for whom Christ died. And it's uh, it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition in movement to where the focus is now on the emphasis of Christ and not simply the action. That's coming up from this uh from this issue within the Corinthian church. This is interesting too, right? Like if we would change, I heard Rob Bell say once that like recently in a podcast with the, the minimalist, he said, you know, it was before Thanksgiving. He was saying that I always say to people, you know, it, when it gets political, like let's talk about the policy, which I think is good practical advice, right? Like, cause oftentimes when we talk about like Democrats or Republicans, we're, we're in tribal anger and we're not really talking about policy nuances, but also like, what if we went talked about in, in these tribal fights talked about Christ and saw ourselves on multiple sides of controversies as all being in need of the redemption of Christ in, in various and varied ways? Yeah, absolutely. It well, it changes the kind of the understanding of what knowledge is. It's this uh, the sense of what Christ has done, 
And that's going to begin to shape how we not only know things, but know one another. And if we love, uh, then we um, are opened up to this, the heart of God in such a way that we are loved by God. And uh, the focus is so uh, moves within that passage away from the individual, emphasizing instead Christ's own action. And this opening up of God's own heart, uh, the Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was this great theologian in the 20th century, Catholic theologian. He is the writes, great Catholic 20th century. He is. And, he and is. maybe the great, I mean, he's one of the top five great modern theologians. Mm, yes. Well, I, I figured you would like that because he was, he was tight with your boy, Karl Barth. Exactly. Exactly. And he, he wrote this book called The, the Heart of the World, and it's this sense, this kind of poetic retelling of uh, the kenosis of Christ in God's self-emptying, but also he refers to it as the self-opening of God to the world, and we finding our place within God, and that we are all welcomed into that. It's a different kind of knowing than simply the knowing of um, metaphysical questions related to meat sacrifice to idols, and but it also isn't to the discredit of considering those things and thinking about those things well, but not to the detriment of our unity either. There's a middle way. Yeah, and maybe it's also, it's faith-seeking understanding, right? I mean, like, faith isn't opposed to understanding, but it is the fundamental move of understanding. Mm. Whether or not you believe in God or not, we all have faith in lots of things, right? But So okay. everybody is staking their claim on some kind of, on things they can't prove, right? Like, most of us in the West believe that women should drive cars. And I think that's completely irrational, right? But in Saudi Arabia, I mean, that's a contestable claim. And there's a, it, you realize how much of it is, a, it's a rational faith commitment, but it's also a faith commitment it, it, from which we build out a view of women and in politics and democratization and things like that. But these, it, 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 all understanding is faith-seeking understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And how do we open up, up ourselves? How do we open ourselves up to that idea? I had a, a text message from a parishioner just last week um, totally gave me no context for it. Just went out and said, do you think there will be punishment for those who have bad theology? And so first of all, I had to I answer hope the question. Not. I hope not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I had the question like, well, where, where do we get this punishment bit for thinking wrongly? And, uh, so, but it's this sense of, of um, who, who are we, trying to understand. We're trying to understand the heart of God and the person of Jesus Christ that we are finding ourselves um, uh, opened up into and becoming more and more into his likeness. And there's a lot, much uh, graciousness within that and mercy. Um, but we need to continue to foster this spirit, recognizing who we are talking about and who we are moving to. So again, that Christological emphasis. Speaking of Christ, let's move right on to the gospel. Mark 1, yeah. 21 through 28. Here we have, after the calling of the disciples, uh, we have Jesus and his disciples going to Capernaum, and the Sabbath is coming. He enters the synagogue, he teaches. They're astounded at his teaching, for he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. He's not like writing it down as what is said. He's actually... He, he looks and feels, sounds and smells like the author of the Torah. 
just then there's this person with an unclean spirit uh, crying out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Um, Jesus rebukes him, be silent. The unclean spirit convulses and you know, there's an exorcism. And there's this mystery, right? Even the, the, the unclean spirits obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Yeah, and it's interesting within that, uh, the one with the unclean spirit, the demoniac, if you will, he uh, refers to knowing who Christ is. And that again goes with this sense of, within Deuteronomy, talking about this new prophet coming, and we're talking about the sense of knowing a type of knowledge Satan, has, Satan could pass the theology exam. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting because uh, his response to this As knowing, could John MacArthur. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I, John MacArthur is a brother. I, 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 se- separated brethren. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> we are united in Christ. We'll Amen. Just leave Amen. it there. Amen. Amen. That will be the sermon. But, you know, contrastingly, so if you look at this demoniac, and maybe we could just, you know, chalk it up to every good demoniac that we read about in Scripture, but they're just a little, uh, little angsty, uh, a little out there. Um, but he refers to knowing Jesus, knowing um, uh, who he is, and being the Holy One of God, and um, in a way uh, expresses a great amount of fear when he engages with Christ. And uh, contrasting that to what Paul is talking about, of this type of of knowing Christ in, in this other way, and one that brings us joy and peace. And the demoniac is the uh, uh, antithesis of all of that. And then when Jesus acts and removes this, uh, this unclean spirit from this person, everybody begins to recognize him as the prophet talked about more and more. And they begin asking more and more questions like that. Uh, and it's interesting too, like only a few chapters later, uh, Jesus is going to simply ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And uh, just the charity that's uh, expressed within that question. Um, He's not uh, demanding uh, anything within those moments. Instead, he's allowing the disciples to move gently into his own heart. And uh, we get to see this kind of expression of Jesus in a way that's patient, but also one with great amount of authority. And the one that we have waited for and the one through this uh, the season of the time of Epiphany uh, between Christmas and Lent that we see has come to the whole world. Can I read you something? Go for it. This is from Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he, he talks about um, Nussbaum's book, um, A Rabbi Following Jesus, or Neusner's rather, um, A Rabbi Following Jesus. Where in, He's very sympathetic and gentle in his language. He's like... Neusner, who's taught at the Vatican, he's like, this is with the utmost respect. We ought to handle our Jewish brothers and sisters, and they can teach us so much about the faith. And Neusner is trying to write a book about why he wouldn't have followed Jesus as a Jew in the first century. And it's a beautiful book. So Benedict summarizes this. Let us try to draw out the essential points of this conversation in order to know Jesus and to understand our Jewish brothers better. The central point, it seems to me, is wonderfully revealed in one of the most moving scenes that Neusner presents in his book. In his interior dialogue, Neusner has spent the whole day following Jesus. 
and now he retires for prayer and Torah study with Jews of a certain town. In order to discuss with the rabbi of that place, once again, he is thinking in terms of contemporaneity across the millennia, all that he has heard. The rabbi cites from the Babylonian Talmud, Rabbi Simile explained 613 commands were given to Moses, 365 negative ones corresponding to the number of the days of the solar year, and 248 positive commands corresponding to the parts of man's body. David came and reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to 6. Isaiah came again and reduced them to 2. Habakkuk further came and based them on 1, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by faith. Neusser then continues his book with the following dialogue. So, the master says, is this what the sage Jesus had to say? Not exactly, but close, Neusser says. What did he leave out? Nothing. Then what did he add? Himself. This is the central point where the believing Jew, Neusser, experiences alarm at Jesus' message. And this is the eternal, this is the central reason why he does not wish to follow Jesus, but remains with the eternal Israel. The centrality of Jesus, I, and his message, which gives everything a new direction. At this point, Neusner cites as evidence of this addition Jesus' words to the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go and sell all you have and come follow me. Perfection, the state of being holy as God is holy, as demanded by the Torah, now consists in following Jesus. I mean, you see this, it's fascinating, even in Mark, which is not as probably sensitive to inter-dialogue of, of Second Temple Judaism, but you, or, or at least that's not his agenda, but you, you see it here, like this is, there it is. Yeah, it's a deep sense of recognizing what is, uh, what is the disposition that comes with engaging uh, Christ in the very heart of God that we're uh, brought forward into this new kind of knowledge. The light has come into our own experience, and we get to be uh, invited into that graciously. Um, and then we're invited to not only uh, see that from how we are reading the text or how we're preaching the text, but how, as Paul says too, do we see those for whom Christ died? Everything becomes um, permeated with Christ, shaped by Christ, um, we get to see the world the way that Christ did. We actually have no other option if we want to continue to live into the Christian life. And I think that's really what Epiphany is trying to push us forward into. And uh, Jensen, Robert Jensen, who passed away just last year, uh, great big fan, American big theologian. Fan, big fan. Big fan. He, he really pushed this idea of the Spirit of God. If we're thinking of Trinitarian um, relations, the Spirit of God is this reconciling point of love in uh, the Father and the Son, bringing uh, God into its own his own futurity, as he pronounced. I don't know how he pronounces it, but as he's bringing God uh, into his own future, the sense of um, we are being opened up uh, to the future, and a future that is shaped by Christ who is present and welcoming us. And we're going to know in a different way, not simply know different things, but know in a way that uh, resembles the person of Christ. Yeah, and God has skin in the game, right? Like, part of that is like God plants his flag with us mm-hmm. in and as Jesus. Mm-hmm. Thanks for doing this with me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and we'll have you back. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or 
pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Nathan for coming on the podcast and thanks to you for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.